Yahweh, we just praise you for this night and just giving us another day to come to your word and dive in. And I just pray that you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to understand and to pursue you as we go through the prophets. Just allow us to hear your voice as you deal with the topics of rebellion and sin and the judgment that brings that you are a God who has a high standard and has a high judgment for things. But also when you talk about restoration and renewal and forgiveness, because you're also a loving God who is quick to forgive and quick to be merciful and to restore us no matter what we've done. Allow us to see this tension as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are doing the pre-exilic prophets. And that's just basically a fancy word for the prophets who came before the exile. In the Bible, the prophets are organized by the major and the minor prophets. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those big, big books. And the minor prophets are like Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Joel, Obadiah, that kind of stuff. And by calling them major and minor, it has more to do with the size of their book than their importance. A lot of people think like these were like the varsity prophets and these were the junior varsity prophets. Um, but it's, it's the size. <clears throat> now, historically speaking, the order that they are in your table of contents or in the way that they're listed in the Bible is not the correct order that they actually came in life and preached. So it is organized more by what they thought and by longest to shortest, although that's violated many times in different places. Historically speaking, the prophets come in a different chronological order, and they are organized more into two different categories, not major and minor, but they're organized in the categories of pre-exilic and post-exilic. So the pre-exilic prophets are the prophets who ministered during the time of the book of Kings. So when all the kings of Israel in the north and Judah in the south, the two kingdoms, were ministers ruling over Israel, and they were leading into that downfall, these are the prophets that preached before the coming exile, before the Assyrians took Israel into captivity and the Babylonians took Judah in the south into captivity. So those are the pre-exilic prophets. The post-exilic prophets are then the prophets who ministered after the exile. So this would be during the historical time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, so they return back to the land Israel still quite hasn't learned their lesson of being obedient, and the prophets start kicking back in again and ministering to that. So these are the two major categories that they're divided into. We are going to go through the pre-exilic prophets now, and then later the post-exilic prophets in chronological order. Not by the table of contents in your Bible, but in the order that they actually ministered historically and put there in their proper context. Now, when it comes to the pre-exilic prophets, they can also be divided into two different categories. And so the first category would be the pre-Assyrian prophets. Now, that one's a self-explanatory, too, because these are the prophets that ministered primarily to Israel, although they also spoke to Judah, warning of the coming Assyrians who would come and take them into captivity if they did not repent. And this happened in 722. 
once 722 came and the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdoms and carried them off into exile, actually killing most of the Israelites for their resistance, then the warning became to Judah of the coming Babylonians. So these are the pre-Babylonian prophets. And they're ministering to only Judah, because Israel's not left, and they're warning of the coming judgment of that. The pre-Assyrian prophets are Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. There's five of them. And then the pre-Babylonian prophets are Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And there's also five of them there. So these are the ones that we're dealing with in this particular class setting. So let's talk about setting. Because we've covered so much historical information over the last several years, going from Genesis to now, and lots of people have difficulty remembering where we've come from, and there's new people here, I'm just going to kind of do like a really crash course on all the historical books up to this point that kind of just get us in the right frame set. So the Bible begins in Genesis with Yahweh sovereignly creating and ordering the world into a good creation. The main point that the creation account is making is not how God created the world, but who created it. And so the idea is that God created everything, unlike the pagan gods who created only a certain thing, and he ordered it, unlike the pagan gods where everything's just kind of random and happenstance, and he called it good, unlike the pagan gods where they just kind of mucked it all up and said, here it is. And the word good here is not a moral word of good, it's a functioning according to its design good. And so we often think of, oh, he's such a good boy. And of course, he's not really because he's a decrepit little sinner. But the word good means that he, my, my, my um, principal is always like, well, he's a good boy. But not like the theological sense of good, just <laughs> relatively to all the other murderous little children out there. So, <laughs> so um, Good means that you're functioning the way that you've been designed to function, or it has functioned. So the creation can be called good because it's functioning the way that God designed it to function. Humans can be called to be good because they're functioning the way they've been designed to be designed to function. When sin comes along, it screws that all up. And then it carries a moral sense because if you go out and just hit people randomly for no reason, you're not functioning the way that God designed you to function. That's not his intent for creating you. And so, yes, there's a moral aspect, but it's because you were never meant to be more immoral in your function. So God creates the world this way. And the garden, he gives them the garden. And he creates this garden of Eden, and it's like a temple. And the idea is the three most important things in the entire Bible is Yahweh, humans, and the garden together. Yahweh, humans, and the land. These are the three most important things, and you're going to see this in the prophets over and over and over again. So God creates a garden, the land, where everything is good, and then he places humans in that land, and then on the seventh day, he enters that garden with them and dwells there as if it's his temple. And so he created them to rule and subdue, which makes them kings, and he created them to attend to the garden, which is also a temple, which makes them priests. So responsible for keeping creation good, and responsible for making God known to everything in creation. This is what his original intention was, to have an intimate co-relationship with us, a reciprocal relationship with us, where we joined him in maintaining the goodness of creation and reflecting the image of Yahweh. That's what it means to be kings and priests.
So that was our full purpose. And then he gave us everything that we would ever need in this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So then we were supposed to go out and do exactly what he does, create, live, and expand like him. Unfortunately, humans chose to choose autonomy. We chose to determine our will. We weren't going to do his will. We want to do our will. So when God says the tree is bad, Adam and Eve decided, no, we think it's actually good. So they rewrote the law. That's autonomy. It's a self-law that they wrote for themselves. As a result of that, they put themselves in um, opposition to God's will. And this is what got them kicked out of the garden. This was then amplified by the fact that once they were kicked out of the garden, sin came in their life, rebellion came in their life, selfishness, autonomy. This autonomy is demonstrated through the murdering of Abel by the hands of Cain. It is demonstrated through the Noah and the flood and everybody doing only what was right in their eyes all the time, and then the Tower of Babel, and so, or Babylon. And so God demonstrates how this evil just spread, not in a virus sense over time, but in a instantaneous, we're all that no matter what kind of a sense. And so it spread. So as a result, God had chosen all of humanity to be his image, to expand the garden for him. They were his chosen people. And he was going to use them to expand the garden, to build the kingdom of God on earth. And this was true by the fact that everybody that Adam and Eve had as children would be the image of God, and they would be in the family of God, and they would expand the garden. But humanity consistently rebelled over and over and over again. We see this in Tower of Babylon. We see this in the, the flood with Noah and all that kind of stuff. So as a result, God disinherited the nations. He said, no longer am I going to choose you to build my kingdom anymore. I'm going to choose Abraham. And that's where Genesis 12 kicks in, Genesis 11 and 12. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God comes to Abraham, who does not have a nation. He's not part of a people group. And the very few connections that he does have, God says, leave your family. And I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a land. So you have people, great nation, and land. And I will be bless you, and I will make you a blessing of the world. So the whole point was that God was creating and choosing Abraham to be this new kingdom, these new chosen people. Even though he was disinheriting the nations and saying, I will no longer use you to redeem the world, he then turned to Abraham and said, I'm going to use you to redeem the world so that you may be a blessing to the world. So the idea is that he was to get the world into his people group again. So God didn't abandon them. He just chose to no longer use them for his purposes. But if they choose to, chose to be a part of Abraham's family, later which will be known as Israel, by faith, then they would be used by God again. And so this is the whole point. From this point on, he begins to grow this family. From just Abraham and his son, to Jacob and 12, which will become the tribes, to then a nation. And this is the people that he's going to choose. And their whole purpose and their whole task in life was to go out in the world and expand the garden because they were in the new garden, so to speak. And so they were going to create a new people garden, the people of Israel, and a new land garden, the land of Canaan, which we now know as Israel. So that was the whole point of what God was doing. Eventually they grew in numbers, and God sent them into slavery in Egypt. And he sent them into slavery in Egypt because, for many reasons, 
but the main one was to humble them. If you're going to witness and lead the entire world into your people group, most of the world is foreigners, slaves, poor people, oppressed, all that kind of stuff. And we don't like kids who've grown up in spoiled little brat kind of homes. And they turn to be entitled, and they don't care for the disadvantage. So God enslaved them so that they would know what it was like to be a foreigner, a slave, oppressed, poor, and disadvantaged. Then he also enslaved them because he wanted to do an amazing act where he would save them, and they would realize that they can't save themselves. There's no way they could get themselves out of that. But God could. So he comes to Egypt, and through the ten plagues, he basically destroys the gods and Pharaoh of Egypt, and then he delivers them through the Red Sea, which Paul says was their baptism, and he led them out into the wilderness through the Shekinah glory of God, which is that big pillar of fire. And that will come back in when we go to Ezekiel, the big pillar of fire, and God dwelt with them. And then he offered them a land. But before they could get the land, he brought them to Mount Sinai. Because that's where they had to meet him personally, so to speak. As personal as it can get as a sinner. All they got to see was a big ball of fire and a voice coming out of it. Hopefully through Christ, well, not hopefully, I mean, hopefully if you have Christ. But through Christ, we're going to see way more of God when we get into his presence. So they come to Mount Sinai, and there God gives them three things. The three things he gives them is the law. The law is how do I live a righteous life? That's the main point. I am not righteous, and if I'm not righteous, I can't have a relationship with God. Therefore, what does it mean to be righteous so they can be with God? So that was the law. The second thing he gave them was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where they could enter the presence of God, physically see him, and be with him and worship him. And this is a little mini creation of the garden all over again. It's not the garden because it's just a tent, but it's the best that we're going to get in a fallen world pre-Christ. Then the third thing he gave them was the sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system was how did they atone for their sins when they aren't not righteous so they get back in the presence of God. So here basically you have the law is the just demands of God. You must do this if you want to be in a relationship with me. But the sacrificial system is the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God because we can't meet the requirements of the law perfectly. So then if you do this, then I will forgive you and you'll be able to be in my presence. And when you bring those two things together, a desire to obey God and a repentance when you don't obey God, then you're able to enter into the tabernacle and come in the presence of God and dwell with him. And that was the whole purpose of the Mosaic Law. Unfortunately, the Mosaic Law did not give them the power to actually be transformed to actually be righteous. It just told them how. And so this is what he gave them. And then at Mount Sinai, he then told them that I want to make you into my special possession. You're going to belong to me in a way that nobody else does. And I'm going to make you a holy nation. You're going to look different in a way that nobody else in the world looks like you. You're going to be unique and you're going to stand out. And if you become specially attached to me in a way that nobody else is in the world, and you look different in a way that nobody else in the world looks, then you will be my kingdom of priests. You will attract the world to you and to God. And the world will want to be a part of you. And they'll want to be a part of the kingdom of God, and they'll want to be a part of me, and then they will become special, and they will become unique and holy, and they will attract more people. And so once again, he's, now it's not just a little thing, Adam and Eve in the garden. It's not just a family, Abraham. Now it's becoming a nation. 
And he just keeps doing the same thing. It's the idea of land and garden and people, um, or sorry, land and people with God. And so he develops this. So Israel gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Unfortunately, they muck it up big time in the book of Judges. They're horrible, despicable people. God raises up judges to deliver them, but they muck it up too and mess it all up and that kind of stuff. And then eventually God decides to do something new. Now the people want a king. The kind of king they wanted was one like all the other nations. The king that God wanted was a Deuteronomic king. A king that was not greater than anybody else, but a king who was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of other people. So they wanted a despot pagan king who basically would be powerful and conquer your enemies and say, follow me, I know the way. And then you follow him and you die for him. But God had to play laid out a Deuteronomy king, a king who says, God is the way and I will lead you to him and I will die for you and blaze the trail for you, not make you sacrifice for me. And so this is what he laid out. So this leads us into the book of Kings. And he begins to establish this idea of kingship. And we see the idea of Saul, who is a horrible, evil king, who murders people and builds monuments to himself and basically turns the entire nation against one man instead of the enemy and tries to kill them all. But he never repents. He never repents. And therefore, he is outside the will of God. We are then followed up by David, who is a horrible man who womanizes people and cuts people's heads off and carries them around as trophies and murders and rapes people and extorts people and kills entire villages, potentially, almost, for not giving him bread. But he repents. And he tries to turn back to God. And he's convicted and he prays to God. And so in that sense, we see the model of what a true person of faith is and a not true person of faith is. And so this is the example that is set. And this is why all through the, the book of Kings, they would say, but he was not righteous like my servant David. And you're like, David was not righteous. But his heart, desire for God to obey him, law, and to repent, sacrifice when he failed. That's what made him righteous. And that's what God expected. This leads to Solomon. Solomon then just mucks it all up. He starts off well, but then he leads the nation of Israel into idolatry. And for all of David's sins, he never was an idolater. He was never an idolater. And so he begins this downfall where God basically says, I will never reject your family, David, because I made a promise to you in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that your descendants will always live and they'll always be kings, but I will discipline you. And God commands a split of the kingdom. And so the kingdom splits into the ten tribes in the north called Israel and the one tribe, Judah, in the south. And then we just have horrible king after king after king after king. There's a handful of good kings in Judah. There's no good kings in Israel. And so just horrible king after king after king after king. So this is the time period that we're entering with the prophets. And so basically the idea is God has built his new garden called the land of Israel. And he has created his new rulers and subduers, the kings. He's created his new priests, the priests. And they were supposed to model his image as he dwelt with them in this land. And then they reflected his glory by making the world look like God's image. And they reflected who God was to everybody. But the kings, they did not do that. And Israel didn't do that. And so basically what happens is they begin to walk further and further and further away from God, and they become more power-hungry and more evil. 
And so God is going to condemn them for three major sins. The first major sin that he's going to condemn them for is their idolatry, not loving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, life, and muchness. Then he's going to condemn for this sin of social injustice, not looking out for the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the foreigners, that kind of stuff. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he's going to condemn them for their religious hypocrisy. The idea that they could worship a pagan god and then go into the temple and just sacrifice to God and play both sides of the fence, so to speak. And God would somehow be okay. And so during this time, this is when he sends the prophets. And so pre-Assyrian prophets come into Israel during this time period of the kings. And they're basically condemning Israel for not being kings and not being a witness. Not subduing the evil in their nation, kingship, and not reflecting the image of God, priesthood, in order to make the land, Israel, a good, prosperous, bountiful place where the entire world would say, I want to be a part of that, and I want to be a part of that God. And so they condemned them, but they didn't listen, and they didn't repent. And so unfortunately, because Israel is so evil, two reasons why they were so evil. One, when evil begins to enter in a nation, it begins to spread big time, and it corrupts everyone to a certain degree. But the other reason they became so evil is because all the righteous people who were left in Israel saw how evil it was, and they're like, I don't want to be here anymore because I'm either going to get corrupt or abused. And they begin to leave Israel and go south to Judah. And so that basically left Israel with basically no good people at all. So when Assyrians came in 722, the Assyrians primarily just killed everybody in Israel as God's judgment because nobody repented. And everybody was really evil. A few of them got carried off into exile and scattered across the entire empire of the Assyrian nations. So then Judah was left. Judah then, the pre-Babylonian prophets come and begin to minister to them. And they warned of the coming Babylonians. The Babylonians who had just defeated the Assyrian Empire in 605 BC and now were becoming their own powerhouse. And so they warned. Now Judah had a lot more righteous people left. But they still were really evil. And you're going to see that in the prophets. And so more of them repented, more of them tried to be good. So when the Babylonians came, God basically is, we're going to see this in the book of Jeremiah. He's going to tell Jeremiah, don't resist the Babylonians. Surrender to them and just allow yourself to be taken. Because this is God's will. And if you don't fight God's will, who are the Babylonians, then you will live. And 70 years later, I'll return you back to the land. But if you resist the Babylonians, then you're resisting God's will, which means you are not obedient and you're not repentive and you're going to die. And there will be no return to the land. And so in 586, that's exactly what happened. And so they were taken into exile. And all that was left was basically the absolute poorest of poor that the Babylonians didn't see it was even worthy to bring them to their nation because why do you want that much of a poor people in your nation? And then Jeremiah. And that's when Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations, literally in the ashes of a burned-down city, and his people carried off. So this is the context, the setting of what we're talking about. The prophets come in, and they minister this. But at the same time that the prophets are warning of the coming judgment and the need to repent, escape it, which Israel is not going to do, nor Judah, they're also promising restoration. 
Because the Mosaic law made it very clear, the Mosaic covenant, that if you disobeyed me, then I would bring this upon you. I would bring plagues, famine, oppression, and then eventually exile as a judgment for your sins. That's the Mosaic law is in chapter 19, starting in chapter 19 of Exodus. But the Deuteronomic restor or the land, the restoration covenant, which is in Deuteronomy 30, said that no matter how much you disobey me, though, and no matter how bad the exile is, I will bring you back and I'll restore you to the land because I never abandoned my people. I abandoned my people in the sense that I will give you over to judgment, but I never permanently abandoned you forever in that I've walked out on you. The best thing that I've ever come up with this is timeout. Okay, the Jews go to timeout. You have to be in the spare bedroom, and you're not allowed to participate with the family activities because you're acting like a little deviant. And that is not healthy for our family. But once you repent, or my mercy just can't, and my love and compassion can't handle you in timeout anymore, I will bring you back and restore you to the family, and we can have game night or movie night together again. That's the idea. Not only did he promise this restoration, but the prophet is going to promise a restoration with a new Davidic king and a new nation that is unlike anything that anybody has ever seen. Prosperity, blessings, righteousness, and all that kind of stuff. So that's the setting of the prophets, to put them in their context. The purpose. The purpose of the pre-exilic prophets was to reveal Yahweh's judgment of exile, his judgment against Israel and the nations, and his promise to restore the faithful to a renewed promised land where he would dwell with them and bless with them. Bless them. So basically everything I've said in one sentence. So that's the whole purpose. Those are the three things you're going to see over and over and over again. God warning them of a coming judgment where they will be carried off into exile, but promising them a restoration back to the land. But the third thing is that this new restoration land will be unlike anything they've ever experienced. It will not just be doing it all over again. He's going to change them in such a way that we won't have to repeat this again. And those are the three things that the prophets are really focusing on. Coming judgment, restoration of the land, but I'm going to change you in some kind of a way so we don't have to just keep cycling through this again. Okay, your kid acts up, you put him in timeout. You bring them back out, they act up again. You put them in timeout, they act up, you bring them back. I mean, something's got to end that cycle. And so this is the main purpose. And once again, he is condemning them specifically for idolatry, for social injustice, and religious hypocrisy. Now, as we go through the prophets... It's going to be very repetitive, and you're going to hear these things over and over again. If you've already been reading it, you probably have sensed that. But to communicate this message, the prophets are highly poetic. They're highly poetic. And there's very few places where you really get narrative. And, and we've already talked about this in the book of Psalms. The, the poetry is sometimes hard for us to connect with. Because our culture, as Americans, relatively speaking, does not value poetry very much. There are lots of people really good at poetry, and we have lots of examples throughout American history of great poets. And there's lots of people who can enjoy that. But overall, most people in school, when you get to the poetry section of the English, are like, oh my gosh, I don't understand this. Because we have really pushed ourselves more towards the systematic, logical reason boom, 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 how does this work kind of a thinking. And so that sometimes makes it hard for us to relate to the prophets. At the same time, they're highly repetitive. 
And we're like, okay, God, we've heard this before. Now we've got to hear it again. But this is for two reasons. One, for the poetry. The poetry allows you to communicate emotions very well. We already talked about this in Psalms. I can say, oh, she really made me sad when she broke up with me. Or I can say, she broke my heart. Okay? We know that she didn't literally break your heart, because that would be gross. But at the same time, there's something that's really graphically demonstrated by that. There's a powerful emotion in versus, I'm sad, versus she broke my heart. Or, I'm sad, and I'm drowning in my tears in my bed. And that's not literal, unless you are getting really emaciated. Um, but the reality is that's poetry. So God uses poetry to communicate emotions in a very powerful way. And there's sometimes where, in our opinion, we would say God is really messed up for the things he says, what he's going to do to the people. But he doesn't mean that he's literally going to do some of those things. It's just how he feels in that moment. And there's other times we think, wow, God, you're really offensive, and I would never want to read that in my church out loud in any kind of a way. But he's, he's making a point. There's powerful, raw emotions that are coming out of God. Because unlike what some people might think, God is an emotional God. He's very emotional. I mean that, and he has a lot of emotions, and he feels them very deeply. He's very emotional, and we get our emotions from him. We get our, The difference is, and the one of the reasons I think a lot of people think, oh, God doesn't have emotions, is because when we have emotions, we either let them like take us completely out of control, and then we make really irrational decisions if they're completely 100% based on emotions. Now, emotions are great, and they're awesome. Emotions can be a very good sign of what you're feeling, what's going on with you, and what you should do to fix it, or how to pursue that even more if it's a good thing. And emotions should shape your decision-making a little bit. You don't want to make decisions completely devoid of emotions when you're thinking about people, but they should not be the absolute ground foundational basis for your decisions. And so we see that a lot in America, from Americans. And we celebrate it in America largely as a whole. And so there's some people in the church who see the bad ramifications of that, and then they warn against it, and they don't like the idea of a God who's emotional like that. But he's not emotional like that. Because in places like Numbers, he says, I am not a man that I change my mind emotionally like humans do. He is not swayed by his emotions to make choices, even though he feels emotions, and they do guide him, and sometimes they do shape his choices. Sometimes he does let people live when they should die because he has an emotional feeling towards them. But it's still always being guided by logic and reason and his law and the bigger purpose of his will. And so in this, you're going to see a lot of emotions are from God, anger and sadness. And you're going to see the great depths of that anger and sadness. And though he will say things to communicate the depths of that sadness and anger, does not mean he's going to necessarily always go to that extreme when he executes his judgment and his will on people. Because you're also going to see the great depths of his love and compassion for his people that he's actually going to end their judgment short of what he said they would be because he feels so deeply for them and can't bear to watch them suffer anymore. And so in the same time you say, wow, God, that's really messed up and harsh that you would feel that way towards them. Pay attention to the other chapters where you're like, oh my gosh, that there was just one person in the world who felt that deeply about me like that. 
and was willing to pursue me as a scumbag and knowing the deepest darks of my sins, how loved would I be and how different my life could be? And the answer is there is. And his name is Yahweh. And so pay attention to both sides of that character trait. They're extremely repetitive because the Israelites didn't listen. And they're extremely repetitive because sometimes, many times, we don't listen. And Scripture is primarily used as a mirror to hold up to your face. And as you look in the mirror, we already talked about this with the book of Job. You're like, why would we go on and on and on and on with bad wisdom? Even though there was lots of good wisdom in there, it was a lot of bad wisdom too. The point is to to reflect who you are. I would really, really, really challenge you to truly and honestly pray to God as we go through this. To one, reveal where you see yourself in this. Are there things in your life that God wants to expose and that you need to repent? Not to expose so that you can be judged and condemned. That's what Israel ended up doing. But to be exposed in order to repent and change, which is what God wanted Israel to do. Really, truly pray for that. Do I see this social injustice in me? Do I see this idolatry where I have made something in my life a greater love than God? Don't just rationalize it as in, well, that's what, don't all humans guilty of that? Or I mean, all Americans are guilty of that. Or it's not really that bad compared to him over there. Really, truly allow God to pierce your heart and say, no, this is you. And we're not talking about what you are compared to him, and you're like only 50%, he's 70%, because 1% is way too much for God. Really allow him to pierce you, and really allow him to convict you. The second thing I would challenge you to see is, do you see our culture in America in this? And not in just this popular vogue, let's hate America, kind of a sense, because that's not good or healthy either, but not in this ignorant Um, we were Christian to begin with, and we always will be Christian. And I'm not saying there wasn't great Christian founders, but just because we were that several hundred years ago doesn't mean we're still that right now. And that honest, I don't have my head in the sand to what America really is, but I'm also not this horribly condemning doomsday, everybody is bad and nothing good is about America. That tension. And really ask yourself the question, is America here? Are they getting there? And allow God to really expose things. Not me. I will make some things that are blatantly obvious. But I'm not going to be the full Holy Spirit here. Because I really truly believe that if I can do a good job of really teaching the Word of God and what it means in its historical, cultural, and language context, and narrative context, and you do a really good job of listening and investigating and seeing if I'm right and making sure that things match up, then the Holy Spirit can really do a great amount of application. Way better than I ever could. Okay, Because you know yourself better than I do, and the Holy Spirit knows you way better than any of us know you. And he is the true application. And so I would challenge you as we go through this, allow it to be a mirror to you and your culture, both in the positive and the negative. I had a professor in seminary, his name was um, Howard Hendricks, and he said every time you go get an index card, and write your five greatest strengths on one side. And then on the other side, write your five greatest weaknesses or sins or faults or whatever on the other side. And every time you come to a passage, ask yourself, what is God saying about both sides of the card? What is he saying that I can do with my strengths? And what is he saying about what I should do with these faults? 
and these weaknesses. And that's what I would encourage you to really do, not only in every book, but especially the prophets. Because the prophets is where God is really going to the heart. He's really going to the heart. There are four major themes running throughout the prophets. Four major themes that we're going to see over and over again. And I've already kind of mentioned these. Um, But the first major theme is that Israel is Yahweh's covenant people. God is going to make a clear point over and over again. You are my covenant people. You belong to me. In a way that nobody else really truly belongs to me. And I have revealed myself to you to a a much further extent than anybody else. I have blessed you to a much greater extent than anybody else. And I have given you a greater responsibility than I have given to anybody else. You are my covenant people, and that also means that I expected you to have a sense of obedience and a relationship with me. Remember, Deuteronomy doesn't just want obedience. Because most of the time our default is obedience because we're afraid of being punished, or obedience because we want a reward. Deuteronomy wants a relational obedience. That I can't think of any other way to love you, God, than to obey you. Because you first love me. And so that's what he expected. I have done this for you clearly. And I expected you to reciprocate this covenant relationship back to me. You are my covenant people. And this is what God is, this theme is going to go over and over and over again. The second theme is that Israel has rejected their covenant God. And he's going to use this symbology, or not the symbology, the metaphor. He's going to use the metaphor of adultery. You're the ones who have had affairs. You're the ones who have gone after other gods. And in some places, he's going to get very graphic with that language to the point that it, it's very uncomfortable. And so over and over and over again, they have pursued their autonomy. They have pursued their own desires to worship the gods that they think will make their lives better and powerful without having to be obedient to those gods. And that they have treated people in the way that they want to because it will benefit them. And so they're the ones that rejected him. They're the ones that had an affair, not him. He has never lived up, he has always lived up to his end of the covenant. And he has never violated it. They have. The third theme you're going to see is that therefore Yahweh has to judge them for their sins. He is a righteous God and a just God. And like I mentioned before in other classes, we do not want to live in a world where justice is never executed. When 9-11 happened, many, many video or many, many video, sorry, I can't say this, many, many, many movie theaters yanked every terrorist movie that was in the movie theater or about ready to come into the movie theater from the movie theaters. They were really thinking that there was no way that those movies were going to make money after 9-11. Nobody wants to watch a bunch of terrorists attacking and killing and taking over things after 9-11. Just hit way too close to home. And so there are great movies that never actually got to see the light of day because they got yanked out. But what they found interesting after about a couple years later, they found that video rentals of terrorist movies like Die Hard and all these other things were skyrocketing through the roof in viewership and money making. And they did a lot of study and research and found out that the reason that lots of people really wanted to watch terrorist movies after 9-11 was because... The terrorists always get punished by the end of the movie. We did not see that happen in 9-11. And if it did happen in some way, it was very much delayed in a long, drawn-out conflict and war in some other country. And we never saw those people specifically. 
And suicide almost feels like a cop-out for us sometimes when we want to get our justice. There's an innate desire in all of us to see justice. And so this is what God is saying. I'm a just God. And being a loving God means that I'm a just God. And we talked about in the book of Job, he does not always execute his justice immediately in the way that we would like, but he does always run the world through wisdom. And yes, one could say, you're not bringing justice, God, like the book of Habakkuk, when it's been over 700 years of watching the Israelites hurt each other and God hasn't done anything. But in another sense, when God does show up with the prophets and brings about Assyrians and Babylonians, he finally is. Because for whatever reason, in his wisdom, it was not the time back then, but it is the time now. And he is a just God and he has to punish them. Fourth thing that we're going to see is he promised to restore them. But he's also a loving and merciful God. And he will restore them. And he will bring them back to the land. And then he will do something way different that they've never seen before. This is the introduction. There's another sheet in here that's the chronology of the king and the prophets. Now, I already gave you this sheet when we did the book of Kings. In the book of Kings, it was a lot easier to follow along the sheet because the book of Kings was chronological. I'm giving you this sheet again so because we're before we were mostly focusing on the chronological order of the kings because the book of Kings only briefly mentioned Isaiah. We didn't see a lot of the prophets there. I mean, we saw Elijah and Elisha, but they're not pre-exilic prophets. So now I'm giving this again so you can see where the prophets are in chronological order and where they match up to the kings in the different time periods in history. So this would be a good resource for you as we go through. 